When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Talia Lachlan, and today I am joined by Annabelle Abbs, the author of Windswept, Walking the Paths of Trailblazing Women. Annabelle, thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Your breathtaking book is a narrative about the walking lives of eight remarkable women for whom walking long distances became part of their individual journeys towards uh, breaking free from convention, but also reimagining their lives and finding their voice. Can you tell me a little bit more um, about the early stages of the book and what first sparked your interest in writing about these women and following in their footsteps? Well, I guess it started when I was, um, when I was a child, really. And I know we're going to come back to this, but I sort of grew up Carlos and walking was an integral part of my life. So and, and, and of course, the life of my, my whole family, my siblings, we just walked everywhere because my father refused to drive and my mother couldn't drive. And so walking was just something that you did if you wanted to see someone or if you needed food or uh, whatever you needed, you had to walk to get it. So so we were always walking, walking, walking. But then as I got older, I learned to drive and I started working in London and working long hours and uh, then children came along and there just didn't seem to be much time for walking. So I spent less and less time on foot. And it was very funny because looking back at that time now, I didn't really recognize it then, but I had this sort of uh, deep physiological ache. It was like a hunger, actually. And at first, I didn't realize what I was missing. And then it sort of started to fall into place. And I just desperately needed to walk and, you know, long, proper walks, not a quick walk around the, the pavements outside my house, but long, wild walks. I think I was missing two things. I was missing the wilderness that I'd grown up in. And I was just missing that, you know, that movement, that hour after hour, that rhythm that you get and that meditative space that you find yourself in when you're walking. So I was really, really missing that. And I thought, I've I've got to start. I've got to start walking again. But I couldn't. So I started to read. I thought, you know, if I can't actually walk out in the wilds uh, and you can't do that when you've got babies and you're working full time, you know, it just doesn't work. Uh, in our, in a, it didn't work in my life anyway. And so I started to to seek out books. And uh, after a while, I noticed that I was reading lots and lots of fantastic books, people hiking across the Alps, hiking all over America. Yeah, just there's some great accounts of walking. And then one night, I just thought, this is really strange. These, these books aren't, they're not quite connecting. And I couldn't work out what it was. 
And then another night, I looked down that uh, stack of spines and I realized that all these sort of books on sort of walking out in nature were literally every single one was by a man. Uh, mm. And some of them were anthologies and they were put together, edited by men. But every single section of the book, every, every single excerpt, if you like, was also about a man. So I thought this is really strange because, you know, I want to read about women walking. I want to read about women who are going through what I'm going through, who have to deal with all these extra sort of safety concerns and gynecological concerns and, you know, am I going to make it back to get food on the table for my children concerns and how am I going to juggle everything? And these men, uh, and, and many of them write beautifully, so the, the writing's lovely and the experiences that they have are incredible, but many of these men were having experiences that I knew I would never, ever have. They would talk about sleeping under the stars and not feeling at all worried or panicked. And, uh, you know, and then one day I thought, this is, this, is, this is not right. And I started researching and researching and researching. And I had to do actually quite a lot of research before I started to uncover hundreds and hundreds of accounts of women walking. And sometimes these were books that I found in the bottom of uh, libraries and, uh, you know, in secondhand bookshops, long, long out of print, never been reprinted. Often I found uh, accounts written in journals and written in letters. And so slowly, slowly I started to pull together. And at this time I wasn't, I wasn't even a writer actually. And I wasn't even thinking about being a writer. I was just sort of, sort of struggling in my mind. And, you know, my body was struggling, a terrible backache because I wasn't, I wasn't walking. I was at a desk job all day. And then, you know, you come back and you're exhausted. So then you play with the kids a bit and then you lie on the sofa. So, uh, and then you sort of jump in the car because you're too tired to walk. So I was in that sort of vicious cycle that I think actually so many of us, I mean, that's our lives now, I think. That, that, that's how so many of us live, which is, you know, sort of sofa to desk to car, back to sofa and so on. So I thought, you know, I, I just started clocking all these women and just, just logging them in my mind. And sometimes I'd scribble the names down. And then later when I became a writer, I, uh, I kept, I kept, this idea wouldn't go away. And I kept saying to people, I was, I was writing novels, actually. I kept saying to people, I want to write about women and walking. I really want to write about women and walking. And, and people were still slightly baffled as to why. Why would you want to write about that? And I said, because there's something not right. There's something not right. There's some, there are experiences out there, you know, deep and rich and profound experiences that we're not hearing about. So um, I'm really jumping ahead here. <laughs> They're all piling through all your questions. But I so started, I, yeah, then, I then said to my agent, I, run, I want to write a book about women and walking. And she said, oh, okay, uh, that's okay. Uh, go ahead. And it still took me ages because I wanted to do the walks and um, I wanted to uh, include memoir and I wanted to include, you know, I wanted to go back a bit to my childhood and understand where that walking bug had come from. So uh, so this book took a very, very long time to pull together. But I I sort of, I think you might come onto this question, but I'm, I'm just going to say I ended up with a lot of women. I ended up with about 50 women. And oh. um, I was really reluctant to, to lose so many of them because um, because a lot of them were, you know, back in the 18th and 19th centuries, and they had written these obscure accounts of walking, often over the Alps, uh, through the Dolomites, all sorts of, they'd walked in all sorts of places. And they'd written a little book, and the little book maybe had one print run, and then 
was completely forgotten. And I'm quite lucky in that I'm a member of a, a library, very, very old library in London. It's called the London Library, and it's a, it's a private library, unfortunately. Um, but it has uh, hundreds and hundreds of shelves of very old travel books, and you don't need to put in a request. I don't know how um, your libraries work, but certainly here, if you go to the, the big British library, you have to know what you're looking for. So if, so if you've never heard of the book and no one's talked about it and it's forgotten, you can't actually go and ask for it. So in the London Library, I was able to do quite a lot of just of browsing and pulling out these uh, extraordinary 200-year-old know, first editions of, 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 of women writing about their climbing of mountains and things. So I was quite reluctant to lose so many women. Um, I'm really interested by, by this issue that you came across uh, at the beginning when you realized that so many of the books you were reading uh, about workers and about the experiences of workers being by men, because this is obviously an issue that uh, comes up in so many different fields, that obviously uh, the gendered experience is not the same for all genders. Um, and as a result, like you described, you started to seek out uh, these texts written by women and realized that there were so many more uh, than the mainstream and so many more that you realized. And so you ended up with eight principal women. And I'm interested to hear from 50 to, to a smaller number, how did you choose these eight women? Did you have a kind of process or did you end up writing about who you had more information about? How did this culling, let's say, <laughs> happen? Yes, culling, that's such a good word. It, it felt like a terrible cull. It felt as though my, <laughs> my own limbs were being chopped off. So of the 50, and I should say that those were all people who had written about their walking. And what we have to remember, of course, is there were just millions and millions of other women. Women were walking all the time, which I just, I'll come back to later, which I discovered in completely different sorts of books, you know, just the women who were just walking and, and, and couldn't write, so didn't, didn't write about it. And for whom they would have thought, why, why write about it? You know, <laughs> um, that's just what I do every day. Why would it, this has not got nothing to say. Yeah, so yeah, there was yeah. also that uh, group, huge group of women who walked all the time um, and, and didn't write about it. So, but from my 50 who had written or painted or left some uh, remnant of it, uh, I, my first manuscript, my first manuscript included all of them just packed in and I handed it in to my, my editor in the UK and <laughs> she said, oh gosh, no, 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 no. There's just far too many here. This is, you know, this, this is madness. You're going to have to cull. And so <laughs> at that point, I realized that she was right, really, because, you know, every paragraph is a different woman. And she said, you need to cull. So I started my cull. And um, what I did was I, I obviously latched on to the names, first of all, the names that people would know about. So uh, the, the names like you know, Simone de Beauvoir and Georgia O'Keefe and Daphne du Maurier, they're already familiar to people, but no one knew about their walking. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. But I also wanted to focus on the women who had, you know, had had done long, really long walks out in wild places. So that immediately cut out all the urban walkers, you know, people like Anais Nin and, and George Sand and the people who just walked cities. So, so I, got a, I got a whole tranche <laughs> slashed off there. And then I also wanted to look at the women who had made something of their walking. So the women who subsequently had quite a big sort of life-changing moments because of the walking and who were able to use those epiphanies in their art or uh, their writing. Mm 
so so that really helped me to uh, do a, a quite a quite brutal cull. So then I got down to you know the the better known names and the women who had then written about their walking, and that also meant that I had more material. So a lot of the more obscure women I had covered. I, I, I had discovered rather, and then not covered. Those women had written this uh, little that they might have written one volume of a, a walk, you know, an account of the Alps, and that's it. There was nothing else. I had no picture of them. They had no archive. There were no letters. Nothing. It was just this one book. I had no idea who they were. So I knew that that was going to make for quite a hard, <laughs> quite a hard slog in terms of research. Whereas, you know, someone like Georgia O'Keeffe already has you know, ten biographies. Uh, and uh, Simone de Beauvoir's hundreds of biographies and all their collected letters. So I had much, yeah, I had much more material to work with. So it made sense. Yeah. So then I, I then I said to my editor, I can't lose those other forty-two women. You know, <laughs> I've worked so hard to find them. And she said, put them in an appendix. So I put them in an appendix, which is about, I think, probably about ten pages. And then the <sighs> book went off to my American editor, and she said. Oh no 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 no! We can't have this huge appendix on the end. She said it, it's it's a bit of a mess, and she was right too. So then, uh, you know, it's that kill your darlings. So then the whole appendix went, and all these forty-two wonderful walking, wild walking women got completely cut out of the book. But now I, oh, I post one a week. I post up on Instagram and on my social media just because I just you know I want them to be known. So so every week I put a. a, a sort of a walker of the week up and that's how I've uh you know managed my guilty conscience <laughs> about culling them all and I guess those um all of those women they obviously helped your research and your take on the experiences of the eight women that did make it into the book but I'll definitely include your Instagram link in the blog oh. in this podcast <laughs> but you know you're so right in that point because uh sometimes I could use a lot of the others when I covered the subject of, you know, um, uh, male male harassment, so yeah. then I was able to draw on lots. Uh, so there were and, and and things understanding how women had dealt with things like walking while they were menstruating, while they were on menopause, while they were pregnant. You know, all of these things they all did feed into that sort of general understanding of the biological complexities that women walk with that men never had to think about yeah, so, so you're right none of it it wasn't wasted it all it all came to fruition <laughs> indirectly <laughs> and what I really love about the book and that we haven't really mentioned yet is that these women's narratives are intertwined with your own story throughout the book and it makes for a really nice reading I found and you mentioned before that from an early age, you were walking a lot. You didn't have a car. You were in the Welsh countryside. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. And it's really fascinating. You you write in the book that you were raised according to the principles of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> yes. And I, I was just really, really interested with uh, you know all these pieces of the puzzle that came together in, into to your book. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about this this upbringing and and how it shaped your love of the outdoors and your love of walking. Well, we lived in we lived in a very remote part of Wales that didn't really have any public transport either. So, so again, it was just 
back to walking. And we were quite isolated there. Uh, but I also didn't go to school very much. So my father, who was a, well, he was a poet, but he was also a sort of a philosopher of education. So he had a lot of theories, a bit like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he had a lot of theories about how children should be raised. So he was very keen to take us out of the local school and have us educated at home, but not, but not, not by him, <laughs> by my mum. <laughs> so we spent um, quite a lot of time. I mean, his idea of education was was really, you know, it's about being creative. It's about uh, helping a child to find their sense of curiosity and their own their own creativity, really. So we didn't really do any maths or science or <laughs> anything, but we did do a lot of drawing and painting and uh, botany and um, walking and and writing a lot of writing. So that was really what I did. When I turned up at a proper school at the age of twelve, I couldn't even add up, which was horrifying. But <laughs> but but that hasn't it hasn't really impeded me too much because I, I did learn maths eventually. <sighs> but the result of that was, I suppose, that the this sense that um, nature was a really important part of my uh, childhood, a really important part of my growing up and. Later on, when I lived in London, it was, you know, it was, again, it was green spaces, green that I really, really yearned for. Mm. Uh, and the other thing I suppose was, uh, we had no, we had no mod cons. We had no central heating, for example. So the house was always really cold. So we would go out a lot just to, just to keep warm. So there wasn't a structured school day as you would get in a classroom. It was very unstructured. And there was a lot of, we'll go for a walk now because it's a bit cold. <laughs> we need to warm up. So it was quite primitive, I suppose. But in some ways, I think that it, um, it it provided a lot of, I suppose, free time, a lot of free time, which we could explore aspects of ourselves that we might not have explored as children sitting at a desk, um, you know, on a chair, learning our times tables. So, and I think I, I sort of refound that while I was walking again. Uh, when I followed each of the women's walks, I sort of refound that sense of uh, freedom, not being bound by either time or space. And it's a wonderful, it's a, a wonderful feeling, really, that we should all be able to have access to. But again, most of us don't have access to those those points where you can be, you know, without a clock and uh, with almost without a roof over your head, but just it's sort of in nature. So anyway, so I felt that was very much part of my my upbringing. And as for Rousseau, <laughs> Rousseau was just always being quoted. And I didn't know who Rousseau was. Rousseau, yeah. to me, was just this sort of strange man. I thought he was a friend of my father's. You know, it never, never occurred to me that he was a sort of a, a dead um, philosopher who had walked. And it was only when I was much older, really, that I realized that Rousseau was the sort of the patron saint of walking. He was the first person really to write about what happens when you walk and how it triggers thoughts, how it changes the way you think. And so that seemed sort of um, synchronicity. So it, was a, it was a strange synchronicity to the fact that I had had that childhood um, with Rousseau in the background. And then later on, I'd become sort of rather obsessed with walking. And Rousseau, so then later on, of course, when I was researching the book in the early days, I went back to Rousseau and... Um, by this point, I, I knew that he'd had this partner, Therese, uh, who he did eventually marry. And I, what I didn't know, though, was that Therese had had all these um, all these babies that had, Rousseau had insisted she sent off to uh, you know to be well. They went off to orphanages, and I think some of them some of them died. But also, I discovered this bundle of letters that were only made public a few maybe about twenty years ago, 
and and they showed that Therese actually then found she found some of her children and met up you know managed to sort of meet them and I think even forge a relationship with them much later but anyway I'm completely gone off a tangent here the point for me was when I came to write the book was that juxtaposition between Rousseau out walking through the Alps walking across walking everywhere and thinking and his partner who uh, worked in a hotel doing doing cleaning and serving and wasn't even allowed to keep her own children Rousseau's children so and the fact that he then put his children in an orphanage so the juxtaposition between that, that very boundaried life that his partner had and his and his his children had and and his life of sort of free free range roaming uh, really really struck me and and that seemed to be almost a, a symbol a sort of metaphor if you like for how the two genders had then going forward um had walking experiences that's such an interesting point and one that is really not well known either that is not made regularly when you think of Rousseau. it's just um very interesting and i wanted to ask you about uh, this idea of your role as uh, a narrator as well so later in life um you physically followed in these eight women's uh, footsteps which made your role as a narrator really meaningful because you were living uh, in a parallel kind of universe, but you were living similar experiences to them. And I, I was wondering, can you share why it was important for you to physically follow in their footsteps uh, in order to better understand the essence of their experiences? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, some of the women for example, George O'Keefe was walking in a landscape that was so alien to me. I just knew that I couldn't possibly really understand her paintings um, or her thousands and thousands of letters where she, she talks. Um, and she's very eloquent when she talks about what it's like to walk across the Texan plains and to walk in the, the canyon, for example, and to walk in New Mexico. But these were landscapes I'd never been into. So I thought, well, I have to, I have to go and see that so that I can see how she drew on the landscape and which aspects of it she drew on for her for her writing her letters and also for her painting so that was really important and some of the other landscapes i was more familiar with but i still you know, i was particularly intrigued by how that how the landscape might have changed in the last sort of 100 years or so uh, and i was also you know, i thought for someone like Simone de Beauvoir, I, you know, I really need to, I need to do some of these walks because she talks, she or she writes so um, physically about them. It was almost a physical, embodied experience, um, and that was something that I found really particular to women writing about walking, as opposed to men writing about walking. You know, there were several differences when I was comparing texts. Uh, there were several differences in the way in which they expressed that experience. And for women, it was often very physical. They would notice um, smells and sounds, and they seemed to be more, um, they, seemed, they, they seemed to be more bound into the landscape in a way, whereas men were more passing over it. And I wanted to understand how they had become part of the landscape and how that had then fed back through to the writing so I, and you know as writers we're always supposed to be able to imagine these things but I really thought I, I, I can't I can't imagine what it's like to walk 
you know, at night over the over the Scottish Cairngorms, for example. I, I, I need to go and do it. I need to feel uh, the sensations that they felt, whether it was the, you know, the rain coming in on their feet or whether it was the smell of rosemary or whatever it was. So that was really important to me. But the other thing was, I just knew that this was not a, it was a book about walking. I thought, this is not a book that I can just write sitting at a desk. And that just seemed all wrong. And by this stage, I was reading a lot of the sort of the, the neuroscience of walking, which is really fascinating now, but also shows quite clearly that when you move, your brain works differently. So I thought, you know, these women have walked and their brain has worked differently. And so I need to do that walk and see how my brain works differently and whether it works in the same way as theirs or the way I think theirs is or whether it's it's completely different so so that was the rationale uh, and I think that this juxtaposition of uh, modern science and uh, memoirs and then your own experience uh, walking these trails or similar trails and that juxtaposition really shows um an embodied experience and I think that's one of the things that I found so remarkable in the book as well and and um, there's a few a, a couple of times where you write about your experience walking the same trails but that you're in the city now whereas back then uh, the woman walking was in the middle of nature and now you've got cars zooming past yeah. it's just very <laughs> this kind of transhistorical um you know, placement of two times and two experiences is, is really unique. Um, there's uh, one of the most common common themes throughout the book is the idea of uh, women using walking or walking as a respite from endless domestic duties and domestic expectations. Uh, and that's something that, that, that comes up uh, again and again. And I especially liked this passage uh, when you write about your own experience. And here I'm quoting directly. You write, I, I thought that having lots of babies would create a family unit in which I would sit like some sort of earth mother, calm, whole, harmonious. I hadn't expected the intense emotional and physical confinement of motherhood, the continual sense that I had lost myself utterly, the visceral love, the paralyzing guilt, and the bewildering turmoil of it all. And so could you elaborate on the idea of walking as a symbol of freedom, not only for the women that you write about, but also for yourself, I guess? Yeah, yeah, walking, it's such a powerful liberator. And and it has been, it has been for, I, I mean, I would say it's a powerful liberator for everyone, but because uh, women have, historically been more confined it's been an even more powerful um liberator but i think that um you know i think and that was something that came out over and over again in every single letter see a lot of these when we walk we're often we're often walking away from something so i was you know obviously probably wanted to walk away from my 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 darling children uh, but a lot <laughs> of the women a lot of them didn't have didn't have children which is why they were able to do so much walking really but a lot of them were walking uh, that was my interpretation and they they often didn't come out and say it but they were walking away from someone a man usually a man uh, some or a bedridden mother so in the case of nan shepherd for example she's a scottish writer and walker you know she lived all her life looking caring for her 
her bedridden mother. Her mother didn't move out of bed. So, uh, you know, for her getting out, getting out for a long walk was actually a way of, of getting away from her mother. And she loved her mother, but that domesticity was confining. Uh, for Simone de Beauvoir, she was walking away from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, and again, she doesn't come out and say that because she's so uh, she's so intricately tied up with him. He's so much part of her identity. But for me, that was really clear that she was walking away. She was trying to find an identity for herself that she could really only find in the wild. She could only find it when she was away from, from him. Um, and so, so every woman is walking, most of the women are walking away from a, from a person that really only became clear the more I read about them. But they're also walking away. And this is the other thing I think that we do uh, as we walk away from emotional situations, we walk away from emotions that uh, are uncomfortable or we don't like. Uh, and it's not necessarily that we're walking away from them just to escape from them. There's an element of that. But we're walking away because when we walk, we, we start to understand them. We start to process them. We, we can sometimes think about um, the emotional experiences that we're having um, when we are outside of them. So if you think... You know, you know what it's like to have a, an argument in a car. <laughs> Having an argument in a car is the worst because you are so, so constrained and very quickly things sort of bubble up. But just to be able to take a few steps away physically, something something changes. And I think something changes also in our in our in our brains when we walk, in our mood, we're better able to look back on experiences and to assess them and to understand them and to process them and to and to deal with them. So it's an uh, it's an, a liberator from our own emotions. It's a liberator from how we feel about ourselves. Uh, and one of the great things about long, very long wild walks actually is it liberates you from uh, concerns about your appearance. And Simone de Beauvoir is actually really good on this in The Second Sex, where she talks about the need for women to get away from the male gaze. Uh, and, and also she talks about the, the maternal gaze, the mother's gaze, because those gazes are so <clears throat> heavy with expectation. <clears throat> and she really says only out in the wild where, you know, you know, we don't brush our hair and, you know, we wash with a bit of river water. Mm. Um, you know, we don't really care what we look like because we've just got to stay warm and dry. She says that is when we lose that sort of fixation with seeing ourselves through other people's eyes. Suddenly we see ourselves as we are. And, and wild walking does that in a way that urban walking doesn't. So, so I was really interested in, in that aspect of, of women trying to, I mean, Georgia O'Keefe is another fantastic example of, you know, when she leaves, when she leaves New York and she goes out to live in, you know, these very remote places where sometimes she doesn't see anyone for days, you know, she's, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't really think about her appearance. And of course, she had been photographed for oh, years by Alfred Stieglitz, always with a camera on her. And or she was always contorting and distorting and bending to, to suit his lens. But when she got away, she could she could find her her own body, and as well as her own mind. So 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 walking in the wilds was liberating in, in lots of ways, taking us away from difficult situations, away from people, but also taking us away from many of our own preconceptions about ourselves. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I was also thinking about the second fact, and uh, while I was reading all the passages about Simone de Beauvoir and what she. Uh, says about her appearance and women's need to get away from the gaze of society and men's gaze and the mother's gaze and and another theme that comes up as well 
other than the theme of freedom is, um, for example, the theme of safety, women walking alone. Mm. There's a lot of times, uh, there's a few anecdotes that you include in the book about women being followed by men, sometimes very insistent men, or women struggling to find accommodation at night and being turned away because people of the town thought that they were a little bit dodgy or could, <laughs> yeah. could not trust them. And um, issues of uh, being alone at night or even um, issues of self-doubt. Mm. And what, what really struck me, and I think that, you know, we, we, we talked about it before, but is this insistence uh, for these women to keep walking despite the dangers and the issues of self-doubt. And um, I guess that must have really struck you as well this this really powerful insistence to keep walking yes and I think that um you know the the downsides of walking alone and and the safety aspects um they were outweighed by the the upside if you like so so I think and I'm sure I think all the women went through the same as, as what I went through and probably any woman who's going on a a long hike you know you're weighing up okay this could happen to me this could happen to me and this could happen to me which uh often don't when you and you and you start dwelling on them in your imagination they, they can just sort of amplify and completely stop you doing anything and become paralyzing you know and this might happen and that might happen and uh and then you have to think about but on the upside you know i will uh, have this sense of freedom. I will have this time to think. I will have this um, encounter with nature, whatever it is. So, so we're sort of our brains are constantly involved in this sort of cognitive juggle where we're thinking, you know, is is that worth it? So, yeah, so I would be, I would ask myself, and I think this happens in the book a couple of occasions when I'm doing one of Simone de Beauvoir's walk, walks. And you know, at, at some stage, there's a huge boulder, and my path was completely cut off, and I was completely alone. Uh, up in up in the the Vaucluse mountains, and there was no one. No, I hadn't seen anyone all day, so it was utterly alone. And uh, I'd gone up this very very narrow path, and I was quite high, and I was going along these little little tiny um, sort of edges of ravines, really. And I was really really frightened. And then my path was blocked by this giant boulder. And at that stage, I thought, right, okay, you know, I wanted to go over the boulder, and I, I was quite sure that Simone de Beauvoir would have got over the boulder, but she was a bit <laughs> younger than me. <laughs> And I had to actually sit down and think, okay, you know, I could fall and there's no one here and I've got no phone signal. Uh, I could tumble off that ravine and die and I've got you know, a family to go back to. And, uh, you know, so I had to actually just think through those and, and then compare that with, oh, I could climb the boulder and I would feel fantastic if I got over the boulder. You know, it would be a life-changing moment, but I might not get over the boulder. <laughs> so, so, so that process that I went through, you know, having gone through it, then when I went back to these accounts of, of women walking, they were doing this all the time, making these fairly rapid decisions. Should I take that path, which is a bit dark, and there could be people, up, there could be strange men up there, or should I take the lit one where I might just get teased and followed, but there'll be people around. You know, and, and Gwen John, some, so, some of the women after a bad experience, did change did change the way they walked. So a woman called Mathilde Blind, who walked on her own in the Alps, she was physically attacked by a man. And she didn't walk alone. She didn't do another long-distance hike on her own ever again. Now, Simone de Beauvoir was regularly attacked. She would just fight them off and carry on. Uh, Gwen John was often followed and uh, always, always, always propositioned. And she then made the decision that she 
wouldn't go into remote, quiet areas. She would stay where, where there were lots of people. So, so these women are always making, going through these quite complex decision-making processes that, again, men never had to worry about. You know, if they wanted to walk through a wood uh, in the night or a, a, a perhaps a slightly rougher area of town, they would just set off. They might carry a hammer or they might take a knife. Some of them had guns. But the women didn't have those um, options available to them really so it was a lot of complicated uh, decision making yeah and to to read your your accounts of all these women and I mean even nowadays women walking alone it has a host of dangers Um, but to to see these these accounts next to each other it really highlighted this kind of um, like for me an admiration of them of their decisions to keep walking and and obviously, uh, really sad to know that it changed the way that they, some of them decided to walk after that. Uh, obviously, a program that um, most yeah, men didn't have. We, what we forget sometimes is that these women are walking without mobile phones, without GPS, exactly. without bras, without waterproof trousers. You know, without lightweight backpacks. They're they're walking in a much more complicated way and and a much riskier way really than we are you know I set off with my with my phone and (laughs) everything is lightweight and waterproof and you know and I have GPS downloaded well not always but sometimes so so the way the way we walk today is, is 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 safer and and easier than it was for them yeah, you include so many uh, details that one would never think about, but things like the clothes that they wore and the technology that they didn't have, and it really paints an image, a very complex image of their experiences. Um, and I, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the research that went behind this book. So what stood out to me uh, as a researcher myself was the substantial amount of primary source research that went behind this book. Uh, So you used sources such as these women's diaries, their memoirs, some of their letters. And so to me, this book was just a treasure trove of of material. And I was wondering what it was like to delve into these women's experiences. You said that before, uh, you you obviously had to call so many of them. uh, But as a general question, what was it like to delve into their most personal documents? Well, uh, as you're a researcher, you will know that research (laughs) is just one of the most joyful things one can do. So I I always think of myself as as a historian and researcher as much as a writer. And in fact, you know, I probably like the research. Well, actually, I love the research. I like it more than the writing. The writing is hard. The research is just, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Again, I, fi- I find the research very liberating, really. Just knowing, just knowing, knowing, and often these intimate little details that you'll find in a letter or in a journal that escape the main biographies. I often like those little, you know, those little tiny details. And also you think you're the first person to discover them, which of course isn't true. But <laughs> um, but doing doing the research was um, was, well, it was a great joy. But it was also a, a, quite a profound experience because, you know, every now and then in an archive, you know, I'd open a letter. And, and as you know, a lot of them are still stored in their, you know, in their original envelope. And you open that envelope, which is, you know, 100 and 
30 years old or whatever. And sometimes a smell would come out, you know, a slight smell. Like I couldn't really explain what it was, but I thought it was, I like to think it was the smell of either the recipient of the letter or the writer of the letter. You know, was it the perfume they were wearing? Was it the air that was around? Was it the smoke that the fire they're sitting next to? But it was a, a the, the the smell thing is a fantastic it's fantastic because it just takes you straight into a different world even though you didn't know that world your, your imagination just immediately sort of puts you out of the library and into this whatever it is Gwen John's hotel room or wherever she was writing her letter so there were lots of moments like that 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 I couldn't really communicate in in the book and wasn't really relevant but as as a researcher you will know that those those moments can be really affecting. Um, yeah, as in, there's yeah, the so many they... magical moments when you're yeah. like, reading correspondence and things like crossed out words and different yes. handwriting and stains on the page and like you say smells and or, or rips on the paper or there are things that are hard to portray in a book but they really change your experience as a researcher I guess. Yes, yes, they just make it a, a richer experience. Uh, and, and it's tactile as well. You touch, you know, you touch the paper. And I, I really feel awful for the researchers of the future who are just going to have to trawl through all our emails. It's not going to be the same, is it? They're just going to yeah. be looking at it on a screen. There'll be no stains. There'll be no smells. There'll be no change of nib. You know, why did she change her pen? <laughs> um, you know, there's nothing. Uh, whereas for us, we can still go and look through, actually hold those letters and those photographs and those paintings and those sketches uh, and breathe them in. So we, we, yeah, we've got I, to do that while we can. I often think about that. I think the BBC recently wrote a small article about the the future of research and how, you know, this generation of writing, these many generations actually of writing letters and having paper trails of everything is mm. um, we're probably the last ones to be able to research that way yeah um i mean not us the last ones but that's the last period of time to be able yes. to research that way and um that kind of brings me to my next question as well is a lot of these um sources that are hidden in envelopes and hidden in archival folders and files and memoirs and things like that are often forgotten or undiscovered and mm. as a result there's a bit of a snowball effect and this is something that happens to, to many people of the past and many women of the past is that they are forgotten and mm. so a lot of the women that you research of the 40, 50 women that you research a lot of them we don't know about because they haven't been written about and so in your book um you kind of shed new lights on part of these women's experiences and in a way you, you give them this legacy, this legacy of walking, but of course it's not just walking, it's a lot more than that and all the themes that go around. So do you have um, any plans with all this unpublished research that you have or any of the women that you wrote about, like what comes next for you? Oh well, yeah. Well, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really pleased. That I've been able to use some of the the lost the lost women uh, again, or or for the first time. So I'm currently working on a book about women and the night, and mm. the relationship that women have historically had with darkness. And I'm looking. So I'm looking at a lot of insomniac women and what they did at night. I'm looking at all the early astronomers, people like Maria Mitchell and 
Cecilia Payne and how they developed their relationship with with galaxies and with the with the Milky Way. Um, so so basically, women at night. I sort of figured that night is another night is really another territory, isn't it? And it's one that I think women have been like the wilderness; they've been a bit excluded from. Because at night, women were supposed to be, you know, supposed to be staying home darning socks. Uh, they weren't supposed to be looking at stars or up and about working, writing, painting. They weren't supposed to be out walking, you know, uh, unless, they were, unless they were prostitutes. Uh, so I'm looking at those, um, I guess they're sort of rebel, rebel night women. Uh, and so some of, the, some of the people, like some of the women I came across that I couldn't use in Windswept, um, you know, they were insomniac. They were writing or painting or cooking. They were doing things at night. They were walking. Um, so I've, I've, I'm managing to put them put them into the next book. But along with but a whole then, new raft of uh, sort of women, I guess this, this astronomers actually in particular, I haven't looked at before. So they're they're very interesting. That sounds so interesting. Um, did the research for Windswept did it? spark your interest for your next book or was it a host of other things uh yeah yeah it did well I'm an insomniac so I I do a lot of work at night and uh so I was, uh, my first my first novel I wrote entirely at night when I couldn't sleep so I had that in the back of my mind and then while I was researching these women I found out that I found out a lot of women went for night walks which I thought you know you know oh. here we're here we don't really go for night walks because it's not considered to be very safe and yet they were all doing night I say all many of them were going out and walking at night again without a mobile phone uh, and they would go alone and they didn't seem to have the fear that that we now live with and so that also sparked my um, interest so I just thought right I'm going to look at sleepless women uh, so, so that's that's what I've got my head into at the moment. I've been, I'm on an astronomy course that is completely blowing my brain. <laughs> uh, you said, you said, I was wondering about that. You were saying, oh, right, yeah, yeah. I was really struggling to deal. <laughs> you know, I like to work in miles and kilometers and a 30 kilometer hike, you know, I can deal that. But there's the idea of being out in space, you know, and it's billions, trillions of miles. I just, uh, light years. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm finding that very hard to sort of just to compute. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know this is pretty early to say this, but I'm actually already looking forward to reading your next book. So <laughs> you have, thank you. you. Have a, a I'll make sure reader. you get a copy when it when it's eventually finished. <laughs> and I'm not going to space for this one. Definitely, the research is staying staying ground level. <laughs> <laughs> well. Annabelle, um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about your book and I'll include some links um, in the same page as this podcast, uh, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for all your wonderful, wonderful questions. Thank you.